Hi, this is Akshay Singhal. I'm the founder and CEO of Lognite. One of the hardest problems in the electric vehicle space is the battery tech. The battery can account for as much as 50% of the cost of an EV, which makes this one of the most critical pieces in the EV puzzle. In this episode of the Founder Thesis Podcast, your host Akshay Dat is talking with Dr. Akshay Singhal, the co-founder and CEO of Log9, which is building battery technology for Bharat. Dr. Singhal's background in fundamental research on material sciences makes him uniquely suited to crack this problem. Log9 has raised almost $30 million till date from some incredible investors, including Amara Raja, which is a publicly listed battery company. This is helping it to build and scale up one of India's most ambitious EV battery manufacturing plants. Stay tuned and follow the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app to learn about the future of business in India. Logran is a material science company which is focused towards energy storage technologies, particularly developed for India and the tropical world. I was quite drawn towards research and that happened primarily because of two things. One is that I like to do research projects from the first year itself and all of it. And then in my second year, what happened was that one of the family functions, I met one of my grandfather who was a scientist in National Physical Laboratory, New Delhi. And he devoted all his life to kind of research and he was a material scientist himself. And he said that, okay, I can come to Roorkee every weekend and maybe we can start doing some experiments in one of the labs if you can arrange. So I spoke to one of the head of departments of NAR Technology Center and then we were able to get an empty lab. He actually brought some equipment and chemicals on his own expense to the lab. We started doing research over there. So because he was working in our technology for the last 40 years and he had set up a lab in his own house in Delhi. So a lot of that equipment and material came came to Roorkee and we started working on that. So that's how my initiation into material science research actually started. Then around the same time, there was a professor who ha- who later became my supervisor for PhD as well. He joined Adi Rurki from University of Florida, US. He completed his PhD and joined over here. And uh, he and his wife, who also joined in Adi Rurki at the same time, they both their PhDs were around uh, graphene. And that material which caught my fancy and I started to work with them as well. So that that's how this got limited. The whole concept of starting a venture around this happened in Canada. So I was in Canada for three months for my third year internship. And while that was the most idle time of my life, I don't think I have spent so many casual days at stretch in the last 15, 20 years. So that gave me a kind of option to kind of think about what to do in life and how to go about making a career and all of it. And one thing I realized was that while I'm drawn towards research, but academic research is just too inconsequential and boring, at least and what I saw around me. And I said that if I have to do some meaningful work, then there has to be a venture which can support new inventions, new products, and that can fuel more research happening going forward. It was Canada where Lockheed was born in that sense. And then the moment I came back, we started a lab in my backyard in Deoband itself. And that's how it started, yeah. So fourth year of IIT, you were mostly working on uh, Log9, like setting it up. And- yes, mostly. And it was very initial days. We didn't even have a company registered or anything. It was just a small lab that we set up. 
and just my father was good enough to buy some equipment so we put it up we trying out a bunch of things doing all other research in Turkey itself on the campus and then around the same time the incubation center came along so the director was uh, at that time Pradipta Banerjee was there and he was very focused towards hitting an incubation cell in IIT Turkey so that came around we were the first company to get incubated there so we grew the incubation cell also grew and so that that's how it started so we finally incorporated the company in april of 2015 which was just one month after my graduation amazing and so that one year when you were tinkering around what kind of problem statement did you have in mind or what what were you doing in that there must have been some focus area yeah it was about basically stabilizing the graphene production process idea was to take this material develop processes optimize them so that we can produce it at scale customize it and that was the whole idea just and an understanding the basic traits of business as well and i remember buying the whole companies act and then going through it page by page so even that happened while many would argue that it was never required but yeah that also happened Wow, amazing. You have the mind of a researcher basically. Amazing. Okay. So, give me like a graphene 101. What is graphene? Where does it get used? And graphene is a very new material. I think in the whole family of carbon materials also you have graphite, you have coal, you have diamond. So, these are all various forms of carbon. So, they came around the carbon nanotubes which around which came around in the 90s. and then graphene is the latest entrant in that family so to speak graphene is also naturally occurring like say a diamond is naturally occurring it is artificially occurring or produced material and it is basically the simplest way of producing graphene is chiseling down graphite so basically graphite has a layer structure so basically what you can imagine that you take a stack of printing paper like a4 size sheets that stack is resembles graphite and if you pull out one sheet out of it that is basically graphene so basically chisel down graphite to make graphene that's the most simplest way there are other more complicated ways more pristine ways to do it assembling atom atom and all of those things but this is how you can explain it in the simplest form graphene manufacturing is not cheap so that's why you were trying to figure out how to scale it up nobody was practically doing it in india it was a very new material globally speaking not many applications have been figured out and still it is in its nascent stage where people are still trying to figure out more and more use cases and how we can be incorporated across all things So that's what we were trying to do in the first two years of the venture. And one thing that we realized in the first two years is that there's no point of just selling graphene as a material. So you would work on using this material to create products. And that's only when a successful venture can be built. One question first before we come to 17. What what are the use cases of graphene? What can it be used for? Is it like a hard substance or what is it like? It's a very versatile material in that sense. So it is not it cannot be corroded. So it's not non-corrosive. It can be used as protective layer. It is very highly conducting. So it can be used in semiconductor chips or in electronic industry and stuff like that. Then because it is conducting, it it finds application in battery materials and battery stuff. technologies in that sense and also because it is a very thin layer material so it has very high catalytic properties so that it further enables battery work and any kind of electro what do you mean by catalytic properties basically catalyst is something which enables a reaction to happen faster for reactions to happen faster you need to reduce the barrier for things to come together so in the context of viral stuff on the internet let's say a matchmaker everybody would have seen indian matchmaking web series so a matchmaker is a catalyst in the whole process of bringing two people together this material provides a substrate or basically a platform where two atoms can come together and react and kind of form a product 
So it's a very good catalyst in that way. And, and hence it can be used in various kind of electrochemical or battery-based technologies. And you were also doing your PhD from IIT at the same time as you were working on log nines. We had a lot of firsts in 2015 for IIT Roorkee and for us as well. So the first time where Roorkee was allowing somebody to have a startup as well as join a PhD program time. And many people didn't, were not even able to fathom this concept. So I still one of the days receiving a call from my head of department in metallurgy department and he called me and he started thrashing me that you are doing a podcast you have a company registered in your name and then at the same time you registered yourself as a student over here so then i had to go and bring out the incubation policy of the campus which was drafted four or five years ago but nobody was aware of it and i found one shanty office in the in that building and i got that copy, gave it to him, then wrote an email to the director copying him saying that this is all happening with proper protocol and process of the campus. So that that happened. And But the primary reason for joining PhD was very different. It was not to actually do PhD. The concept was that while I was able to get some support from my family to start the business, but I had to manage my own personal expenses as well. And PhD at that, at that time provided a 30,000 rupees stipend per month. So that was quite good at that age. And that's the reason, that was the primary reason why I joined PhD. And also another reason was that as a student, you can get access to many more labs on campus versus uh, as somebody who's already graduated. Okay, amazing. And like before you moved to Bangalore, 2017, you moved to Bangalore. But before that, what kind of use cases were you looking at? I can see that you built like a filter for cigarettes. A lot of weird stuff, like including filter for cigarettes, a water filtration membrane, air filtration membrane. So there were a lot of these kind of weird applications that we were looking at. The concept was one simple one was to look at things which can potentially lead to saving climate change and save carbon emissions, purify things. So that was the whole idea that we look at applications which have a kind of climate angle to it. And was your goal to build an IP and sell that intellectual property? Was it an intellectual property business or did you actually want to manufacture also? I think the concept was not very clear at that point of time. And I was not reserved to do one versus the other. But a lot of people did suggest at that time that why do you want to go into manufacturing and doing these things why don't you just take make, make technology keep on making technology and licensing them out which sounds like a very rosy picture but it doesn't happen that often and it's far more difficult to be able to do it in the first place because thing is that uh, your credibility on a technology comes with market success and without having any product of your own in the market Nobody will be willing to give you that credibility that, okay, how it developed actually works. It has actual benefit and all of those things. So you really need to get your hands dirty before you think about licensing and stuff like that. I think that's the experience I got. 2017, did the plan change? Why did you move to Bangalore? So 17, the move happened because obviously, see, Rootkey was a good stepping stone in that way. But obviously, a venture of this type cannot be built in Rootkey. Uh, obviously, the geographical constraint that Rootkey has to offer. Uh, I, uh, initially, we thought that why don't we move to Delhi? But sorry to all Delhiites, but I don't like Delhi at all. I spent six months over there and uh, no, that was not the vibe I was looking for. 
And also around the same time, I again went to Canada for a conference and there I met the chairman of Nara Technology Center at University of Science Bangalore. Pratap was the founding chairman there. And I met him, I told him what, what kind of venture we have built. And he was kind enough to invite me to ISC and say that, why don't you visit, see what all we have. And we'll be more than happy to support an individual like you to build this kind of a venture in India. So I went to Bangalore the moment I came back. And what I saw was just phenomenal. So they had one of the, like, it was the most advanced and state-of-the-art nanotechnology facility in the entire country and at par with any good center globally as well. So it was 300-odd crore facility under one roof having everything house. And I was getting access to that facility for peanuts, for practically 50,000, 50, 1 lakh rupees a year, something like that. That was a dream come true in that sense. And then we started to work with various professors also there. So the relationship kind of developed very quickly and got into advanced stages very quickly because of the kind of repo that I was able to create with Dr. Utipatap. So that uh, that kind of limited the move to Bangalore. And I think it took us only three months to pack everything up and move. Up. So who is we here? Are you still like a solo researcher trying to figure out some use case or do you have other by the time we had one or two people, so we had our first team member who joined us in 2016. So he was, so he graduated from MIT and then he was a researcher at IIT Bombay. And so I met him in a conference in 2016 and he joined me in IIT Roadkey itself. Karthik, my co-founder, was also there. At that time, our third co-founder, Pankaj, who was our advisor then to Lock9, he was there, but he was not making the move. He was still in Delhi. And he was actually making a move to Kochi at that time because of his another venture. So all of that was happening. So a bunch of two, three people, that's all we had at that time. And so I decided that so if we really have to have grow the team, the right talent will also be easier to find in Bangalore. And we are getting access to resources. I think that that move was good in that sense. But how were you paying the salaries? You were just getting that... 30,000 yeah. internship stipend. Because we were the first company in Cuba and I did okay, so we got a small, very small investment from the campus itself. That was okay to last us during the two years in Turkey. And my family also put in something. But in just before moving to Bangalore, we closed our first investment round of a bunch of friends in Delhi, led by Mr. Aditya Gupta, who has been our earliest investor in that sense. And so with that money being available, we made a move to Bangalore. And what was your pitch here that you will build something using graphene? I think at that time, the one product which we had finished was the cigarette filter. So that was there. But luckily, they always realized that this is not the ultimate potential of the company. This team has more to offer and with graphene and the materials understanding, there is a bigger potential out there. Okay. So uh, tell me the journey now, once you're at IAC in Bangalore and you have access to a 300 crore facility. Yeah, so we were not stationed inside the campus, so we were just beside the campus. We were half a kilometer outside the campus and we set up a small office over there. And then we would, I think almost every day, one or the other person from the team would be at ISC doing some experimentation, testing, whatever it is. And then we had, a, so most of the fabrication or processing or synthesis kind of experimental work used to happen in our office or R&D center, which was outside ISC. And most of the testing and characterization we would use ISD for. And then we also started doing certain projects with... What do you mean by characterization? And then whatever you have produced, has it been produced at the right quality, right type? What are you actually looking to get this? Because you cannot look that, like you cannot just observe it with an open eye. You have to really put it under a very secret microscope to see if the structure is right or the properties are right. 
So all of that testing, characterization as we call it, was happening at ISC and the synthesis work is mostly being done at the IT sector, which you said. And you said you were doing some projects. Yeah, so we started doing current projects with various professors in ISC. We applied for grants. There are various government schemes. But the only thing was that I think with Pankaj's experience in his previous company, it was clear that we cannot be dependent on grants for sustenance of the business because you apply for a grant today. While the intent of these grants are right, the processes take forever. And while you apply this year, maybe it will come through a year and a half, two years later. So that happened. But with that experience, at least you're not depending on these grants and they came when they came. Okay, okay. So had you started working on battery by now or were you still experimenting? Within six months of moving to Bangalore, we started working on batteries. So we... Battery, batteries caught our attention around that time. And also one thing which we realized is that given that we want to focus our energy towards climate change, doing anything around energy, whether generation, storage or whatever, is the best bet because energy contributes, whatever, and our energy consumption contributes 70 odd percent of all the carbon emissions in the world. So if you're swapping for energy, then you're getting the biggest impact from a carbon emissions perspective became a very obvious choice from that context. And one thing that we were particularly looking at is why battery research is not happening in India, A, and why the other batteries which are being developed globally, why are they not able to perform in the same fashion as in, in India as they're being able to do so in Europe, China, US, or wherever other places. These two questions we were trying to answer at that time and we realized that our conditions are very different, our temperatures are very high, types of vehicles that we have is very different, road conditions are different, usage patterns are different and then hence technologies need to be customized for these operating conditions and at the same time we also have to be conscious of what materials and what raw the supply chain is available within the country so that we are not just climbing one ditch which is basically buying oil from the Middle East and falling into another ditch, which is buying batteries from China tomorrow. So the idea was to solve for these two things at the same time. Okay. Now, there, there are two concepts I want you to like give me a 101, like an explanation. First is nanoscience and nanomaterials. And second is batteries. So whichever one you want to start with first, you can. So I think the best way to understand why nanotechnology is important, why it works is, so let's say you take a jar and you start putting pebbles inside the jar or let's say chocolate like a Ferrara washer kind of a chocolate you're putting stuffing it up in the jar and now what you do is that you take out all those chocolates and then you want to put one chocolate each into one single jar maybe smaller size jar but one single jar so what you will notice the amount of glass let's say for the jar required in when you are storing them in individual jars would be much higher because our each chocolate into a different jar. Whereas if you stuff them all together, it is one single jar, the amount of glass would be so less. So the most important thing that happens when you are dealing with nanomaterials is that instead of dealing with a bulk material, which, require, which requires one sing, which has a one single surface, which is much smaller. If you break these into smaller particles, overall surface that is available is exponentially higher. And this surface basically is what enables nanomaterials to have very varied and very important properties that can be leveraged for various kinds of applications. So that is what is happening when you're breaking things down into macro to micro to nano. And how do you define macro, micro, nano? Is there a numerical? So basically, let's say anything which is one meter 
or let's say one centimeter in that range, all this, everything is macro. We have milli, which is millimeter, and then you have micrometer. 10 to the minus three meter is micrometer. And then you have nano, which is 10 to the minus six is micro and 10 to the minus nine is nano. So it is very small. Then a nanometer, your hair is in micrometers. So that is thousands of times thinner than a hair. That's what you're talking about over here. Surface area allows for, like you gave that example of the matchmaker, the catalyst. So more surface area means? More surface area means more space for things to come together and react and things. And there are other properties which as you go reduce the size, there are other properties that also come into the picture, but this is the most easiest one to understand. What are the properties come into the picture? Like, For example, the conductivity changes. So just another example which is often used in our technology is that if you take a gold, if you take gold, it's a very good conductor of electricity. But if you keep on breaking it down into smaller and smaller particles, gold will become a semiconductor. Or And if you further break it down, it can even go into becoming an insulator, which is very contradictory in the practical sense of how we visualize gold or silver in that sense. Interesting. Okay. Fascinating change a lot as you reduce size. Okay, fascinating. Okay, now tell me about the battery technology. Like you said, not much innovation has been happening in battery technology. What is the state of... So basically what, what's happening in a lithium-ion battery, let's, let's example of a lithium-ion battery itself. So if you open a lithium-ion battery, you will see a coil, like an aluminum foil coiled into a casing and that close. So if you open that up, you will realize that there are two coil, two foils, two parallel foils which are coiled together to make a battery pack. And what's happening between these foils is that it can be imagined to be a long corridor. Then on one wall of the corridor, there are multiple shooters like with guns who are standing. And then the, when you're charging the battery, these shooters are firing bullets at the wall in front of you. Now these bullets are those lithium ions. So as they move from one electrode, as we call it, or one wall to the other wall, Charging or discharging happens, right? Now, in the, in the basic sense of it, obviously, if you will fire bullets on the wall in front of you, the wall will get broken. Hence, every time charging and discharging is happening, the walls are getting broken and have degradation and then batteries have a limited lifetime. Unlike the usual analogy of just walls bouncing back and forth between the walls, it is not balls. It's basically similar to bullets being fired between the but how is energy generated in a battery? So energy, as it is going from one wall to another, so to give an analogy, it is in a higher energy state. As it's going from one wall to another, it is going to a higher energy state, right? When it is, so it is similar to bringing water from first floor to the 10th floor. That's how you basically, that's why you need power motor to own water. And then it comes down, it releases energy and it is, is available in the house. That is similarly, as you're charging the battery, you're basically putting energy inside the battery and the ions are going from one place to another or one wall to another wall where it is at a higher energy state. And when it comes to release energy for various application. Now, as this is happening, the wall is always getting broken. And this breaking of wall will obviously create noise in the analogy and in the actual battery, it will create heat. So that that is why batteries get heated up. And uh, that's why you see fire explosion and all of those things. And what happens with the rise in temperature is that this process of the walls breaking up gets amplified. The materials are more agitated and hence they break faster. So what we have done is that we have nano-engineered this wall in front of you so that A, as the bullets are coming, it does not break. It can cash those bullets into its structure and then throw them back. So the wall is not breaking. That basically 
that there is less heat generation. So these batteries are far more safer. And because it is not getting broken, it will last much longer. And at the same time, because anyway, it is not getting broken. So why shoot with a pistol? Start shooting with a machine gun, which is basically equivalent to you can charge it much faster. What are the, the two materials which these two walls are made of? So it can be a variety of materials, but so for example, the most commonly used chemistry globally is NMC chemistry of lithium-ion batteries, which we, which is basically that this one wall is made up of lithium, nickel, manganese, and cobalt. And the other wall is made up of graphite. In our case, it the first wall can be like lithium, nickel, manganese, cobalt. It can be any other formulation of lithium with, with manganese or nickel and stuff like that. And the other wall, instead of being of graphite, we have it made up of titanium, a nano-engineered titanium with graphene incorporation. So that enables it to catch these bullets and as I explained, you can charge faster, last longer in all of those things. And then there is another chemistry, which is lithium ferrous phosphate, which we are also developing. So in this case, uh, instead of lithium, lithium, nickel, magnesium, cobalt, we have lithium, iron and phosphate. Now, because there is no nickel and cobalt, it is far more cost-effective. From an India perspective, it is far more self-reliant because uh, iron and phosphate is available. Lithium still we can source from Australia and other places. And also what happens is that as compared to NMC, lithium LFP and lithium titanate, these, the LFP and LTO chemistries that we are making are more, more resilient to higher temperature. NMC is very, very sensitive. It can explode, it can catch fire, it can degrade much faster. Whereas LSP and LTO are far more resilient. So if they have a longer life, they can perform in very high temperatures. And the way charging happens is that one of these corridors, when it's plugged in, then one of these corridors gets a positive charge and therefore it attracts. One of the walls of the corridor gets charged and then the ions move to that side, which is high analogy of shooting bullets. And then when you reverse the direction, then bullets come from come back from the other side and it releases energy in that because it's going from high state to low state then okay got it got it. so about 2018 i guess you must have started battery research tell me about that journey of actually from an idea to a minimum viable product i think the first battery technology that we started to work upon was aluminium air battery or as we call it the aluminium fuel cell and we were trying to solve everything at one go so we were saying and what is an aluminum fuel cell? So just like lithium-ion batteries are there, so aluminum air battery is a technology which is there in which what you don't need to charge it. So basically what happens is that the battery is being utilized, aluminum plate, which is one of the walls in this analogy of a corridor, is getting consumed. So all the aluminum will just go to the other wall and it will get finished. Then nothing can happen again. Okay, so this is a one-time use battery basically. So aluminum air battery is a one-time use battery. When you convert this concept into aluminum fuel cell, what you can do is you can refuel, keep on adding more aluminium in on this side so that it's on discharging on the other side. So that's the aluminium fuel cell concept. And side, we, we developed, besides developing it because we wanted to solve everything at one go. So we said that uh, aluminium is abundantly available in India, so we'll never have supply chain issues. India is the largest producer of aluminium in the world, so no problem on the side. Battery likes working at 50 degrees Celsius temperature. Temperature is not a problem. Now, the cost is very, very cheap because itself. So, cost is not an issue. So, uh, that way, it had very, like, huge positives. And the other thing is that with this battery, you can go for thousands of kilometers because the real concept, so you don't have charging time issue, charging station issue, and all of those things. Yeah, there's no range anxiety. There's no range anxiety. So, all of these things were getting solved at one go. But obviously, this was a far more nascent concept 
globally, not just in India, globally. Today also, there are only two companies, including Log9 and an Israeli company called Finergy, which are developing and have uh, reached some kind of commercial viability or what to say technical viability on this technology. And uh, that, that's where we started our journey into the battery space. But what happens is that in any kind of a fuel cell system, whether it's our aluminum fuel cell or whether you, have, you would have heard of hydrogen fuel cell, any kind of a fuel cell system always will give you a constant energy. It, it cannot increase and decrease on demand. So it will always give you constant energy. And But if you're driving a vehicle, you would imagine that you are accelerating, deaccelerating, braking, you're stopping. So your energy requirement cannot be constant. It will always keep on fluctuating. Now to manage that fluctuation, you need something which can store energy and give it back, which is your normal battery. So what happened was that as we were developing that... So in a normal battery, there is the ability to increase the output. You are just storing charge. You are not generating energy there. You are basically storing energy. So you can take out as much as you want. And as we were developing the aluminum fuel cell, there has to be a subcomponent of... One quick question, sorry, before. What is a hydrogen fuel cell? So hydrogen fuel cell is that... So what happens in an aluminum air battery or aluminum fuel cell is aluminum metal is being oxidized. So what basically that says that it is, it is aluminium. So what happens is when you mine aluminium from earth, it comes in its oxidized state, which we call as bauxite. So we have bauxite mines across the country. And so it is aluminium is oxidized in that form. That is the most stable state of any metal. Oxidized state, most stable state of any metal. And that's the reason we have rust on iron and it tries to get rusted because that's natural state. Now, impart energy into that to bring it into metallic form, basically remove that oxygen. So we take these aluminium plates and the system we are intentionally or deliberately trying to oxidize it and as it is getting oxidized and it is getting into a stable state it is releasing energy and that energy is being used to power the system that is the aluminum fuel cell now clearly in the case of hydrogen fuel cell you are you basically have water to start with water is hydrogen and oxygen combined together when you remove oxygen from water you basically get hydrogen which is the excited state of water so to speak right or hydrogen is what you're getting now, in the hydrogen fuel cell, you're deliberately combining hydrogen oxygen again to release energy and get that nature. But the problem with hydrogen fuel cell is that it is hydrogen is a very inflammable gas. So it can explode, it, it has to be stored under pressure. And obviously, the system that is required to combine hydrogen and oxygen in a safe manner becomes costly. So from that perspective, aluminium seems to be a more reasonable or a simpler approach in the larger scheme of things. Hydrogen is not something that you mine. You would create it through chemical process. Yes, it has to be created. Either you can, like the most, so to say, ideal ways to split water and create hydrogen, but you can also, which is a greener way, but you can also create it from methane, from natural gas. So you can also create hydrogen from methane, natural gas, and all of those things. Okay, got it. Yeah, now coming back to your journey, sorry. Basically, when you're developing a fuel cell, you need a battery. So as you're developing aluminum fuel cell technology, we decided to develop this battery subcomponent itself, which is suited for the fuel cell application. So you need a battery because the fuel cell is constantly in a state of releasing energy. And that has to... Yeah, and it is a constant release. It will be almost always the same amount of energy when you're using a fuel cell. But in a vehicle or in any application whatsoever, you always have peaks and troughs of energy requirements. So whenever it doesn't make sense to waste that Base the peaks to channelize that through a battery will be more efficient. Developing this battery, which can do this charge and discharge very quickly, has a very long life, and all of those things. 
that's when we started developing our battery pack with using a lithium ion technology and covid happened by that time before covid we already had sequoia xfinity everybody so we had vcs come in there were more investors who came in after from gems waiting after 2017 and then we had around in 18 then vcs coming in 19 and how much did you raise pre covid so pre covid all put together we had raised around 5 million dollars so it was a decent sum of money at that time and the pitch was batteries by then you had pivoted to batteries we have we completely focused that the battery is our forte and that's what we do but covid happens so everything was shut down and unlike a software company you cannot do things on a call you have to be in the lab develop this make it happen so the obvious this thing was that why don't we scale down why don't we fire a few people reduce salaries and just get by for a Waters uh, before things are back to norm, but I put my foot down and said that no, we're not doing this. These are engineers which are capable of many more things, and the nation or the entire globe is under stress. So why not develop something which is beneficial for the requirement at this time? At the same time, it can keep us afloat, and that's how for six seven months we did this whole line of products around UV disinfection, and we pioneered that entire concept in the country. We had seventy percent market share within a quarter of launch. It was phenomenal, and it was done in break breakneck speed. So from idea to understanding the UV technology to creating the product, to setting up manufacturing and dispatching, it took us fourteen days, one four. Wow, amazing! Tell me, what is the idea? How does it work? How does UV disinfection work? UV disinfection is something which is known, but you have to keep it give it the right shape and form, and then you have to also have to simulate what amount of UV dosage will be required to kill a coronavirus. It can kill a lot of probes, but what how much would be required to kill COVID? So we did a lot of back study. A lot of analysis was available from the SARS break times. SARS and COVID are very similar in nature. Uh, they are. And it's very similar in all of those things. So all of that simulation, all of that analysis happened. Then we were able to narrow down the way this much amount of UV is required. Then setting up a supply chain in middle of COVID. What form factor? Like for what use case did you want to? So this was basically for anything from a mask to hospital equipment to groceries coming into your house. Anything and everything, any object that you can touch, basically, you should be able to sanitize it. Like something the size of a microwave oven. Yes. So it was actually called Corona oven. So we called it Corona. Oven. And you can stuff things inside and sanitize them. And the idea that everything you cannot put a sanitizer on it, and many things you have to put a sanitizer on. So something has to be more, say, non-touch or non-contact in that sense. And that's how it started. And then we did, I think, some twenty odd SKUs of it, from a oven type of thing to conveyor systems and and towers and handrail systems and whatnot, and even deployed them at the airports. Even today, at the Bangalore airport, all baggage goes through a conveyor system, which was designed by us and deployed over there. Disinfection. This would be like the first revenue making that happened. Yeah, absolutely. It was the first, and and in that sense, I think it was really good for the team because we got a sense of. Uh, what does it take to develop product, take it to market, manufacturing, branding? After how did you figure out manufacturing, and especially during COVID? We worked with various, so to say, contract manufacturers in Bangalore, uh, in and around Bangalore. And co-founder Karthik, he had a short stint at ITC, so he had some background of setting up manufacturing facilities in ITC. And we scrambled all of that together, set up these contract manufacturers, rolled their entire process, and then set up distribution. We had 140 some odd retail points across the country within a matter of one month. And this even in Meghalaya, Manipur, and in the north, far northeast, Jammu and Kashmir, we had our 
uh, systems go all the way to the army cantonment in where that incident uh, happened pulwama puri and uh, places like that and even i think even today if you go to prime minister's office so you are supposed to keep everything that you're carrying your file mobile or whatever into a corona oven before you can meet the prime minister so deployed far and wide across a- a- anywhere and everywhere and end result we didn't need to fire anyone we didn't need to reduce that. we actually gave increments during covid and uh, people were working well super excited and at the same and also it gave a huge commercial sense to the entire team and as we went through this process we realized that how important it is to go commercial how important it is to have a product in the market as a start and uh, that gave us an idea that this battery that we were developing as part of the aluminum fuel cell larger stack this component itself has a huge application in the indian context and it can go into the small vehicles like two wheelers three wheelers and solve the challenges that we have over there and that's how we were able to produce our go to market from a battery perspective by at least 3 years if not more and then we went commercial on that side and now we have a huge standing in the battery industry or the ev industry in india okay I, i want to understand how that happened the battery component you were uh, working on you made it that titanium graphene that you said it was a titanium graphene in the batteries there are two levels of manufacturing one is your cell manufacturing and the other is battery pack so you first make a cell then you put multiple cells together what is the difference uh, okay cell is like a small unit of battery basically cell is small if the cell is similar to your remote cell right what you now for a vehicle to work you will have to have multiple cells put together connected with all the electronics battery management system and everything into a battery pack so that it can power a vehicle or any application whatsoever now cell manufacturing is the most complicated and the most capex intensive play in the entire value chain because we as usual are always late to any new party any new innovation we are always late to the party people in china or in europe have been setting up these things the last 20 years we have just woken up to the extent that in india we are talking about setting up cell manufacturing to the scale of 50 70 gigawatt hour as a country as a whole by 2030 whereas individual factories in china and europe are coming up with capacities of 100 gigawatt hour today so there are 100 gigawatt hour size of factories coming up today where our country's expectation aspiration by 2030 as a whole is 5070 gigawatt hours so that is the kind of disparity that is there and hence cannot start small you cannot say that i will take baby steps and start small and can move forward to it in that essence you need to have a large factory and anything less than 10 15 gigawatt hours is just too small to be of any competitive benefit and setting up a 10 15 gigawatt hour kind of facility is a capex of 3000 plus crores and you can imagine how many business houses would have that capability to set up something 3000 crores at onset itself that is where cell technology is challenging that is part of the capex then access to technology who where is the technology where, where will it come from if you look at the pli scheme of the government itself the government was expecting that lot of international battery majors what is the pli scheme so pli scheme is a is a production linked incentive scheme where the government is trying to incentivize manufacturing cell manufacturing in india so there are schemes for different sectors there are pli scheme for semiconductors there are pli scheme for automotive the pli for batteries in similar fashion like they would get some tax breaks if they manufacture in india tax breaks but if they were to hit the benchmarks of quality and manufacturing then you get some uh, rebate from the government per unit of production or per kilowatt hour or whatever 
rates are. Now, the thing is that as the PLI scheme came about, the government was expecting that obviously uh, a lot of international battery majors would apply for the PLI scheme and they would be willing to set up base in India for this to happen. Not even a single one came forward because they were too caught up with the demand coming in from Europe, China, US in that sense that there was no incentive for them to focus on India. And if they're not even willing to look at setting up manufacturing, forget about giving access to technology in that sense. And that's the other bottleneck, that where the technology come from. So what we are doing at Log9 is that A, we are the only company today in India which has a homegrown, ground-up, developed cell technology available on the lithium-ion side, which has been proven to work in a viable manner. And now we are scaling up those processes. The cell technology here that you're talking about, that is the titanium, graphene, uh, titanium one and the lithium ferrous phosphate LFP. LFP and lithium titanium, these two technologies, which are the choice based on the operating conditions. So both the technologies we are developing and scaling up, but it takes a while to scale up the process, arrange capex for all that machinery, all that commercial, this thing to have. And that's the reason we brought in our Raja batteries as one of our lead investors last year in Log9. So working with them very closely to see how we can scale it quickly. Now, as this is scaled up, you cannot just keep on sitting on your hands. You need to kind of provide validation of the, these technologies working in the market. So we decided that till the time our own cells are able to reach the market, we will import cells of this type, the closest that we can get. And start producing batteries and start creating a market for ourselves. And that's what we have been able to do and commercialize so far, wherein the battery packs and we were the first to bring this kind of cells to India. Which, did you bring LFP or titanium graphene? Yeah, titanate. Titanate is what it's called. LTO. So we were the first ones to put LTO cells together into a battery pack for mobility, two-wheeler, three-wheeler, four-wheeler cargo trucks and those kind of applications and launch the, launch it in the market and that has solved a lot of problems which was a problem of life because when these batteries while they were able to run for four or five years in a chinese setting or a european setting in india they were not even lasting for two two and a half years and that was affecting the livelihood of somebody who was trying to buy a th electric three-wheeler for example and do logistic operations of that secondly i took just forever to charge these vehicles. Four or five hours is just too long to charge them. Then third thing is that as the battery was discharging, they were losing the load-bearing capacity or the torque or the acceleration on the vehicle. So there were multiple challenges in operations of these vehicles. But with the other batteries, you could charge them in 15 to 30 minutes time. You have a life, you didn't have to worry about life. The life of the battery was three, four times the life of the vehicle itself. There was a challenge of replacement of the battery or your range going down every month. So that was not there. Thirdly, wearing capacity, whether your battery is 100% charged or 1% charged, it was all the same. That kind of gave us a lot of traction very quickly. To the extent that we went selling these batteries commercially just last December, within a matter of three, four months, our vehicle manufacturing partner, Omega Seiki Mobility, which is a three-wheeler manufacturer out of Delhi, they went from number fifth position in the electric three-wheeler cargo category to number one position within a matter of four months. So that is the kind of scale and traction that we have seen. And while we are scaling our battery production, we are also scaling cell manufacturing. And we did our day zero. So this was basically technology day, which we now plan to do every 21st of April of every year, which is our foundation day as well. So we did the first solution of it this year, 2022, April 1st, 21st, 2022, we did that. And we announced that what kind of technology we are bringing up, what is possible with this technology. And also announced uh, the setting up of the first 
commercial scale cell manufacturing line in India and Southeast Asia. So this will be the largest cell manufacturing line that will be coming up by lockdown in the entire Southeast Asian region. Is your technology very different from what you're importing? You're already importing that LTE battery. Yes, so it is very different from what we are reporting right now. So we'll be able to offer much better features in terms of life, in terms of the range that we can offer and also the cost of every cell that we'll be able to produce. And this is basically the way those two walls inside the cell are designed and what kind of features we're putting it up. Okay, so you've changed the way in which those walls are designed. Uh, these walls, how are they manufactured? Like how does a nanomaterial get manufactured at scale? So basically in a physical form, it will look like a powder. Because what happens is when you are when you have these nanomaterials in a powdered form, they cannot stay as individual particles. So they will agglomerate is what we call it and they'll form bunches. And then if you look at it, it looks like, like a atta or whatever color it might be in. But then you have to disperse it, you create formulations, you create suspension of it, create a battery, then you coat that onto the foil, which is very similar in physical shape and form like a kitchen foil. And then coat that, combine materials together, put it inside a case, fill the electrolyte, and then seal it out. So that's the process of it. And it has to happen in a very controlled environment. It can There can be no dust, there can be no moisture. So all of that controlled environment has to be made. Okay. And how does this ATA get made, the powdered form of the nanomaterial? There are, so there are two approaches to it, right? Getting a nanomaterial, there are two approaches. Either you start with bulk, then you chisel it down. So you basically are breaking a bigger material into very small pieces. So that we call as a top-down approach. The other op- approach is that you... S- and does the chiseling happen with like blades or... There are various processes. So you can have uh, uh, vibrations, you can have blades, you can have hammers. So there are various processes and equipments to do it depending on what you're dealing with. And then the other approach is that you assemble atom by atom. So you have things in a gaseous form, you take atoms, combine them together to get the nanomaterial directly which we call the bottom approach that you're starting with atoms and molecules and creating material in the nano form. So either of the two approaches are there. Typically, when you're dealing with bulk applications, for example, coatings and batteries and stuff like that, you typically take the top-down approach because that is more economical. It has less finesse, it has less purity, the top-down approach has less purity, but it is more economical and viable in that sense. Whereas if you are dealing in the semiconductor industry or the electronics industry in that sense, then you need very high purity. And there the amount of material required is also less. So you don't worry about doing a bottom approach and assembling atoms, atom by atom, and then getting the material. So typically, that's how you segregate the two processes or two parts of creating nanomaterial. You said uh, like setting up a plant costs a lot of money, like 3,000 crore. So do you have that money in the bank or what is the way in which you're doing? We have money in the bank right now, but given that we are not just, de- we are not dealing with a Me Too technology. We are not dealing with a comp- something which already is happening as, as well. We are developing it in a new way. So we have that levy to have baby steps in the process. So we get a small plant first, which itself is not a small investment, but plant that we are setting up Right now, it is still 200 crores of investment that will be put up. And then further expand it to that 2,000, 3,000 crore kind of a scale. So we have, we'll, we'll do it in those steps. But if you are just taking a technology which is available on every nook and corner, then you cannot start with a small, never be competitive. That's the reason technological edge is important in the industry.
Fascinating. You said you raised from Amara Raja and, and others. How much have you raised? Have you raised this 200 crores that you need? Or? Yeah, so that has been raised and uh, we are raising more right now. So last year, till three months back, we have raised around $25 million. Uh, we have just closed another $25 million right now. And the total round that we are raising at this point is around $50 million. So there are more investor commissions that are happening for the balance 25. And uh, essentially your product line today is purely just a battery pack. The UV line, you're still doing that or that was... The whole company is just focused on batteries. Currently, you are importing the cells and then assembling it into a battery pack here. And the, you have built the software in-house for... So all the components, all the electronics, all the battery design, system, EMS, everything is developed in-house. And how many battery packs have you sold till date? So we have around 2,000 vehicles with our batteries on road. It's actually more than that. And by the end of this financial year, we are looking at a number of more than 15,000. And are these like IoT enabled? Do you get back data of all the data? So we have data we, and we have predictive models also. In our system, we can monitor each and every cell. So there is far better control on what's happening inside the battery. And at the same time, we have predictive models where we can see how the energy is being used inside the battery. To even say that your tire pressure is low and hence you're losing efficiency. So, so that level of predictive analysis is what we need. So which is why you needed to work with a manufacturer and have a deep integration. You couldn't just find a distributor who will sell it because you have the data coming back to you. That data adds value to the manufacturer also. Interesting. Does the vehicle owner get data from you about battery health and all of that? Vehicle, vehicle owner gets the data. The, the manufacturer gets the data. We get the data. So it's all linked and even financiers get detected that how is the battery health, is it fine, what is the life left, what kind of financing tenures they can look at it. So the entire value chain gets stitched together. Because I think the biggest cost component in an EV is the battery, like 40-50% of the cost is. And so you tell me about this partnership with Omega Seiki. Why did you select them as your partners and what is the future of this partnership? While we are now working with 15 different vehicle manufacturers in the country, including UH companies like Omega Seiki, many of them have already been announced, Grevo, Northway, Ebico, a lot of other players. Then Hero Electric, that's announced, JMT. So all of these are already announced partnerships. There are others as well. Total 15, 16 OEMs is what we are working with. And it's also legacy companies, large companies as well. The reason we went forward with Omega Seki to start with is because A, they were new. They had the fire to do things at our pace and at our speed and also to disrupt the market. Traditional companies, just by the nature of their scale and operations, they tend to become inherently slow. I'm not saying it is right or wrong, but it is just the nature of the business. So you have to work on those same guys. While they are also important partners, it is for a startup, it is important to deliver. And uh, so are you also working on charging infrastructure or battery is your sole focus? So we don't make our own charging stations. We also don't deploy our own charging stations, but we still manage to control the largest fast charging infrastructure in the country. And that is because our end customers of these batteries and these vehicles are all commercial and these commercial users, unlike personal users like you and me using it for home purpose, unlike us, they provide consistent charging demand. Because a home user like you and me would may or may not end up at a charging station in a week's time. Typically, you would like to charge at home where electricity costs six, seven rupees a unit. Why go to a charging station where it is higher, double or more than that? And at the same time, we don't need to charge every day. Our utilization is very low. 30, 40 kilometers average is what comes out in India. Whereas in a commercial use case, you are at least looking at 120, 130 kilometers per day. So you 
to have multiple charges during the day itself. And also it's predictable in the sense that if, let's say, 10 vehicles of our type are deployed in a certain locality, those 10, ty- 10 vehicles will remain in that locality their entire life. Unlike us, when we are going to office one day, to the, to the cinema hall another day, and then on a road trip the next week, those commercial vehicles will follow the same route, same say, track, day in and day out. So that provides a consistent, predictable demand for charging and enables charging infra to grow more viably for the business. And in the case, we were able to provide minimum guarantees and utilization commitments to these charge point operators and they were able to scale as well. Before we went commercial, there were only 300 odd chargers, some 300 change chargers deployed all over the country, which can support rapid charging and fast charging. And within six months of, and this happened over the last three, four years, and with our commercialization happening within the matter of six months, we were able to put 200 additional of them, or we were able to facilitate installation of 200 additional of them. And we are looking at a scenario by the end of this financial year, we will will be putting 200 every month, or we will be facilitating 200 every month. That is the scale that is required and it can only come with commercial. So this is more like a platform approach that you're taking. You are saying that on my platform, I have EV manufacturers who are putting my batteries in. And on my platform, I also have charging companies who are setting up charge points and I can... And I'm able to provide business guarantees to both of them. For an EV manufacturer, it makes sense because then the customers don't have range anxiety. And for the charging infra provider, it is assured revenue, basically predictable revenue because you know what is being deployed. Probably you can also tell them that there is this deployment happening here and therefore I would need. For example, this customer of ours has taken 10 vehicles for their fleet operations. So why don't you put a charger at their base? And that has happened. But uh, these manufacturers share data with you of who's buying, where their vehicles are being deployed, like that sales data. We have the data online though. We know which percent buying, where they're using it. So all that data is coming from the battery pack. Okay. So you have an API integration with them. So whenever a new sign up happens on the app for the vehicle, you get to know about it and because you are providing the battery, the battery dashboard is powered by you in a way. So Okay. Okay. What other pieces are you tackling in the EV space? So you told me you're fixing battery, you're fixing charging. What about the port? I'm coming from a mobile phone user. So mobile phone, you have Apple has its proprietary port and Android phones have the USB-C port and so on. Are there such issues in EVs also? A lot of of it. So while there was a lot of excitement to create our own charging connector, we shied away from it. We said that Let's use what is already at scale. Even if that scale is small, at least we'll get some head start and we'll not be unnecessarily introducing another competition into the connector space. So we, we use whatever was already deployed and scaled on that itself. Which is like the most deployed? So the thing is that two two most deployed ones, one is called GB by T connectors or in India we call, is internationally it's called GB by T and in India it's called RTC001 and then the other is CCS. So GB by T connector is for sub 100 volt platforms, smaller vehicle on smaller cars, two wheelers, four wheelers, it can, three wheelers, it can support that. And CCS is then about 250 volts, which is meant for heavier trucks, bigger cars, and where you need higher voltage platforms to be definitely there. So these two are fine. And I think these are the two connectors which should be progressed further. Keep these two connectors, make it universal in that sense. Globally, there is a gravitation towards these two charging protocols. So I think we should buy on to that. There is, I don't know why there is this inherent 
need to develop your own connector all the time. It makes it complicated for everybody. How many volts is there in a two-wheeler? Like you said, sub-100 volt is two and three. 48 to 72 volts. And it's not like linear. So you have the, mo- like the most common is 48. Then you have very few 60. And then 72 is also there. So 72 and 48 are the most common. There are a few platforms which are on 60 volt as well. And for three-wheeler? Three-wheeler is, I think, most of the industry is at 48. Oh, okay. Same only for both. Okay. Okay. But three-wheeler is like predictable usage because purely commercial. You don't need very long range because you'll always be near charging. Okay. And what about for a car? So there are vehicle platforms uh, which are at a 48 also, but now that is completely fading away. But uh, we have, for example, Tigor and Burrito, the older four-wheeler electric cars in India, they were, I think, like 72 volts platforms. But now four-wheeler, like all car kind of platforms are moving to 300 volts platforms because that enables faster charging in that comes and you have need to have a bigger battery pack as well we will still have four-wheeler cargo vehicles for example Tata launched one we also launched one and uh, those are around 90 96 volts uh, kind of platform what do you mean you launched a vehicle so i think like with another partner so there's a company called north so with them we launched a four-wheeler cargo platform uh, with a What else now uh, besides these? So port we've discussed, you've discussed charging infra, you've discussed battery. What other issues are you tackling? We are also offering, uh, so financing is another another issue. So we are also offering battery or service options. So while our battery doesn't need to be sought because it can be charged very quickly. But what we are doing is delinking the battery financially from the vehicle. So you can pay for the vehicle up front and for the battery part of it, you can pay a lease or rental in that sense. Fascinating. That is amazing. So essentially then I am no longer worried about battery life. I just am paying a monthly subscription fees. Basically, it's like a subscription. I'm subscribing to a battery then. Amazing. Okay. And how does the cost differ for somebody who's subscribing versus somebody buying out? Your overall impact on per kilometer is doesn't change much. Obviously, in a subscription, you will have to pay the interest rate as well. But in any case, you will be paying the interest because hardly anybody buys the vehicle upfront paying all the money. Like either I will take a EMI loan or you will pay a subscription. So it doesn't make much of a difference. But yes, it provides more peace of mind because liability of the battery is not with you. It's with, with the manufacturer like us and we are happy to take that. And that is on your balance sheet or do you like get it financed? There are multiple structures. So some of them are on our balance sheet. There are other structures wherein it is all balance sheet and stuff like that. So it's an industry is a little nascent on this side. We're trying to get it more mature and open to exploring options at this point of time. And this would be done in partnership with the manufacturer, like the manufacturer would, not all of them would be giving this option. The ones who opted in for this program, they would start offering. And this payment comes to you or it goes via the manufacturer? How does that work like the it is happening when it comes directly to us. Fascinating. Okay. And so this actually would give you very predictable monthly revenues then if you did it only like only subscription based. Would you want to do that or you're neutral to both? So we are neutral to both at this point of time. So whatever works for the end customer, the idea. See, if you practically look at it, our business is making batteries. Everything else is to support that business. So we don't need to be picky on that side. Will this lead to some selection bias? People who select subscription are likely to misuse batteries <laughs> because then they know that. A misuse can happen in case when you have battery swapping because you are touching the battery, you are removing, putting it back every day. Whereas here the battery is fixed, it's below the base of the car or the vehicle, whatever it is. So what can you really do with it? You cannot, you're not even handling it every day. So from that perspective, we are better off 
And as I said, we are able to monitor each and every cell inside the battery pack. Right? So when anybody tries to do any hanky-panky with the battery, immediately an alarm can get triggered. So in this, like you will, once the life of the battery is over, you will replace with a new one. Yeah. The person will just keep paying subscription. We do. Actually, it's the other way around because, okay. for example, in the three-wheeler, typically the life of the three-wheeler is five to six years. Battery life is more than 20 years. So the battery will come back to us after five, six years. And we are even offering guaranteed buybacks on the battery pack. And then we can refurbish it, augment it a little bit and put it in the next set of vehicles. This sounds like a massive play, battery as a service. Uh, I think this could probably be the biggest part of what you're building. Currently, you're only doing commercial vehicles, like you don't want to get into passenger vehicles and all. So it doesn't make sense of the climate. Contradictory to believe all EVs are not green. Okay, <laughs> what do you mean by that? So the thing is that EV manufacturing and battery manufacturing in particular is a very carbon intensive process. So there are a lot of emissions associated with the battery manufacturing itself. Now, if you combine the emissions that have happened in the manufacturing process and the emissions which you are saving or not saving on the road and a typical car, let's say Tata Nixon, for example, right? A Tata Nixon was EV versus a Tata Nixon petrol. It will take you 100,000 kilometers before an EV becomes greener than a petrol bike. That is primarily because A, batteries are ready to manufacture. And B, even today, 70% of the energy anyway in the, in, in the country is coming from burning coal. So you're not absolutely green when you are using electricity to charge your vehicle. When you put all those together, there is a threshold of 100,000 kilometers before you hit parity. And no personal use case vehicle is driven for 100,000 kilometers in its lifetime in India, or very rarely. Whereas a commercial vehicle will be driven like a taxi, for example, would be driven for 300,000 odd kilometers, two and a half, 300,000 kilometers in its lifetime. There's a clear path to sustainability in that sense. So at least for the next two to three years, we will be focusing only on commercial. And we expect that uh, the Prime Minister's dream of adding 500 gigawatt of renewable energy on the grid comes true much sooner than expected. And then even the personal use case vehicles will become cleaner and the threshold of 100,000 will potentially become 40,000, 50,000 kilometers. So then you have a clear path of sustainability on the personal mobility side as well. Once this 500 gigawatt of renewable energy is activated, what percentage of our city will then be green? Depends till when it comes up. <laughs> it also the growing demand. If it comes up by 27, 28, I think... 70-80% of our electricity should be clean. But if it takes longer, then you never know what is the overall demand. Like there are projections out there for that as well, a factor of time. And is the government doing something to get this 500 gigawatt? Like it sounds like a massive target. Like of policies. Yeah, it is a massive target because the overall demand today is 250 gigawatt. Now. 250 gigawatt is the total demand of the country. And about 500 gigawatt of renewable. So the installations are aspirational or the targets are aspirational. And at the same time, there are a lot of policy interventions which are coming up. And so the government is really focused on doing it. But there are some inherent practical challenges also associated with it. What challenges are there? So the biggest challenge is that renewable energy is intermittent in nature. Solar will only work when the sun is out there. What do you do at night? Wind always doesn't blow and the window always blow at the same speed. So you will have variance of generation. Now, how do you tackle with this varied generation, but you need consistent demand? Is there a demand which is consistent on the user side? So how do you match to do? So there has to be channelization of energy. And then again, batteries come into the picture. And then what is the scale of batteries? Then again, what is the cost of these batteries? So again, the same comes up. So in a way, to have 500 gigawatt renewable energy, you probably need something like 100, 200 gigawatt of battery storage capacity. Much more than that.
and this is a space for you to explore as well we are exploring that uh, but the space is slightly more nascent more needs to things need to be figured out because there are a lot of other auxiliary systems which need to come up the grid and all of those things so even the government policies are shaping up now also uh, for this to really work you need to bring in dynamic pricing of electricity today in india we hardly have any dynamic pricing the cost of electricity is same in the day and the same in the night whereas if you look at europe us everywhere else there is higher pricing in peak hours the evening hours and stuff like that uh, whereas daytime pricing or the late night pricing is far lower for this to efficiently work and for the batteries to be paid up by themselves its uh, dynamic pricing is very very important for those keeping up we had a huge challenge in india setting up smart meters like it's it's a known fact that a significant portion of electricity consumption is all theft so basically people don't want smart meters but smart meters come up then then you cannot steal electricity and all of those things there are some very serious on ground challenges which the government is trying to tackle is a 1 gigawatt battery fundamentally different from a like say a 48 volt battery pack or? yeah the voltage bands can be different but it's all like units multiple units coming together so the it's the same technology only the same technology but just that your architecture the battery pack level will change building block will more or less remain the same and that brings us to the end of this conversation i want to ask you for a favor now did you like listening to the show i'd love to hear your feedback about it do you have your own startup ideas i'd love to hear them do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in the show i'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests write to me at ad@thepodium.in at that's ad@thepodium.in at 